You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Andrea Pitts, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at University of North Carolina at Charlotte in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they are also affiliated with a number of other programs, including the Center for Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies, the Women and Gender Studies Program, and the Social Aspects of Health Initiative. Andrea has published widely on Latin America and Latinx philosophy, as well as decolonial and postcolonial approaches to European thinkers, with particular emphasis on how such thinkers help us reimagine approaches to gender, race, sexuality, nation, and carcerality. In this conversation, we discuss Andrea's new book, Nos Otras, Glorian del Dua, Multiplicitous Agency and Resistance, which was published in late 2021 by State University of New York Press. Our conversation here focuses on key concepts and arguments in the book about the place of race, gender, and nation in the work of Anzal Dua and its implications for the theory and practice of philosophy. Andrea, welcome. It's good to see you. Hi, John. It's good to see you as well. I'm really happy that you made time to uh, talk about your new book. I was really excited when I saw it. It's one of these things where I saw it in one of these, you know, flyers or catalog early announcements, and um, I had really high hopes for the book just because of the topic. I just think it's so essential and urgent and long, long overdue. Um, and really, the book, reading it, just really exceeded my expectations. I think it's been incredibly interesting. It's really, really smart. It's an amazing blend of textual study and original reflection. Uh, and I just, as I said, it's such an urgent project. I just can't even tell you uh, just uh, how grateful I am that you wrote the book. So thank you for that. I just wanted to start thank with you. that. It's, it's important. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate the uh, the kind the kind words and, and the, the, you know, taking the time to, to read it so carefully. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, you know, and, and so maybe this as a way of getting started, uh, I'd like to ask people to narrate their way into the project for us, you know, and, and you can get at, get at that however you want, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of ethical, political, philosophical concerns or personal or the blend of those. Um, and I'd like to ask because I just think the origins of projects are really interesting, but also, you know, writing a book takes over your entire life, you know, and uh, everything from your uh, professional life to your self-esteem to, you know, your own yeah. intellectual aspirations are totally at stake. So it's a lot to take on, right? Um, and so I always think these stories about how we got to these projects, because something must motivate us to put in this kind of effort and take these kinds of intellectual and I would always say emotional risks as well. So how'd you come to this project and, and why write it now? Um, yeah, thank, thanks for that. Um, so I've, I've been studying Anzal Dua since, or at least reading her since undergrad and kind of taking um, 
a concerted interest in her work since it, certainly during grad school. Um, and it eventually, her work eventually played a central role in my dissertation when I was working my PhD. Um, and so I was at, at that time in graduate school, I became really interested in her conceptions of self-writing and autobiography. So I was taking classes both in philosophy and in Latin American um, literary studies. Um, and her work had kind of stood out to me um, for how to do um, really close analysis of one's own positionality, experiences, context, um, concerns, desires, um, you know, fears, conflicts, the things that are kind of the, ex the existential stakes of, of writing. <clears throat> and then also um, how she did it with a community-directed um, approach so that it wasn't just personal introspection for the sake of individual exploration. It was um, theoretically and um, practically oriented towards um, growth with others. And I thought that something, there was something really, you know, both beautiful and politically important about that communal and collective task of self-exploration. And so one of the things that I've come to kind of more carefully think through now and that I think drove this book in particular, so different from the dissertation, um, was that there was, I think there's also some um, kind of uh, ongoing, I mean, as you and probably lots of your listeners are aware, these kind of strengthening um, forms of, of individualism and certainly kind of neoliberal agential models that, you know, when we when we're thinking about who we are or what we want to be, we're kind of in control of how others see us, or that we have some kind of choice about about yeah. how we're going to choose a little of this or a little of that and become who we want to be. And I think there's something really dangerous about those hyper individualized models because what they do is they 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 may um, localize or foreclose ways of thinking about our political concerns or our social conflicts that don't um, gear us towards the collective tasks that, that are actually the, the best ways that we have to address forms of oppression or forms of harm or forms of conflict we might be confronting. And so really what I was hoping that the book could do was shift from thinking about um, agency from an individualized context to um, a more uh, um, plural and, 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 and social context, but also one that is thinking about historical um, and relational inter interdependencies. And so I think the book was trying to do that. And also, I just I was just reading, um, I'm teaching a class right now on uh, uh, epistemic injustice and um, uh, epistemologies of resistance. And we just read a piece by Patricia Hill Collins on epistemic injustice and intersectionality. And she makes this really beautiful point about, you know, <clears throat> black feminists um, of the 1980s and 90s who were activists long before they ever became academics started entering into higher ed in the 1980s and 90s and 70s. So she's thinking Tony Cade Bambara, Barbara Smith, but she's also mentioning other women of color at the time. And these, these folks include Anzaldúa, who uh -huh. in the 70s enters in uh, the University of Texas and the 80s at uh, UC Santa Cruz and starts introducing concepts from their activist work. And so it's also, and, and what, what Collins names in this piece is also that trend to, to take those those resources from activists and the existential stakes of communities of color and then try mm -hmm. to um, 
to make them more palatable in a higher ed setting or make them more to neutralize their political critique in, in academia. And so she's yeah. critiquing that and she's concerned about that. And I think part of this book was also an attempt to to try to reclaim and resituate the the practical and the um, kind of political and urgent stakes for Manzaldúa's work that would that would allow us to resist also some of that that neutralizing and individualizing uh, uh, tropes from her work. Yeah, uh, the, there's so much in in that. I'm I'm glad I asked. Uh, you know, every time I ask this, I'm like. <laughs> People's narration into their own projects is, in some ways, as interesting as the project, and I think that's I think that's a good thing. I mean, you know, as you're pointing out, I mean, we write books, right? And we yeah. write books you know, a lot. Most of us about books other people wrote, and so this yeah. sense of sort of voice activism, method, framing, you know, uh, struggle against neutralization, right, um, right. and I think that sort of that 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 plurality that you're talking about in Anzaldúa's work, um, as well as, you know, the other people you mentioned, you know, Bambara, et cetera. I mean, I think that you, not only do you give a, the, does your book give a, a nice reckoning with that kind of voice, but you, you embody that also as a writer in really interesting and I think not self-indulgent ways, you know, I think, I think, you know, you. what you're talking about can be really self-indulgent, you know, sure, um, sure. but, uh, I, you know, but you know, your book yeah, is, is emphatically not that. But I also like that in in the way you were talking about it, in the way the way uh, I read your book is also that way that we learn from the people we read and interpret, right? Yes. And yes. and part of that learning sometimes is how to talk and how to write. Yes. <laughs> and, um, Absolutely. Um, so let me ask you. I mean, in terms, I mean, this sort of plurality uh, question uh, sort of leads to this. Um, a question about the title. You know, titles are extremely interesting. Um, I don't know how you do work with titles and essays in this book, but I'm always a title first person, <laughs> um, and sort of uh, end up working towards the title after I come up with it. Um, but whatever the process, I think you know, titles where the publisher lets you title it, which I, you know, I was <laughs> glad that Anzal Duo was not in the title, right? That you were able to title this book as, as you wanted. Um, I've had, you know, it's always a struggle for me with my book titling, but um, I wanted you to sort of walk through it. I mean, it's, it's two words and a slash, right? Mm -hmm. And evokes simultaneously, right? Nos and otros. Yeah. Uh, simultaneously evokes us or we, and that difference might make a difference and others. Right, which is a really compelling evocation, right, inside Anzaldúa's text, but also for sort of post nineteen sixty eight philosophy in the Atlantic world, uh, to post independence in the South Atlantic, um, certainly, and um, in Europe, uh, this sense of the other, right. But it's mm -hmm. so interesting the way, of course, you're evoking simultaneously not the I or the me, but the us and the we. So I wanted to, you to sort of talk through those terms and what they mean, why this is your title, but maybe as much as that, why the slash? Why not a mm -hmm. comma? Why not an M dash? Why not a space, right? The slash, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't want to overread, but it's, it's, you know, these things are always for me so interesting, these choices. So maybe walk us through the title. It's, you know, two short words and a slash. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, thanks for the, the care and, 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 and analyzing the title or thinking through the title. So, um, I'll first just be upfront that it's actually, it's not my term. So that's actually a term yeah. directly from Anzal Dua's work. So nos slash otras. Um, and so I actually, want, it was both a um, meant to refer directly to something that I saw as relevant in her later works, actually her dissertation writings of the 90s and early 2000s, right before her death. Um, and also something that I think carries out that spirit of the book of, of, uh, kind of thinking through agency in a, co- a a way that is both able to negotiate our you know collective projects and collective social movements, but also the the work of the self, the existential stakes of the self that is not still not yet done in isolation, but that is yeah. done uh, perhaps for political reasons to localize around conversations of the self and personal experience and personal pain and things like that, but which are also themselves, I think, importantly, um, uh, interdependent upon others and on, on our material yeah. world. So it, it, it shares a lot of resonances with the themes of the book. And I think I chose it from Anzal Dua's uh, writings, particularly because I thought it had that that nuance. But I, I think just back to the, um, also just to briefly mention something about the origins is that um, one of the things that I also, as somebody who's now been thinking with Anzal Dua's work and her readers, her, her the you know, the interpreters and the um, uh, uh, critics and um, people who have appreciated and been thinking with her work for a very long time, um, it's it's that I think a lot of folks don't often read past her uh, her 1987 book Borderlands of La Frontera, and so I wanted to choose a term also that that kind of brought us to her later writings to really encourage readers to to grapple with what she wrote after the 1980s and that she had, yeah. a, you know, nearly a decade and a half after Borderlands to really continue working as a theorist, as a writer, as an activist. Um, and I think that that the, the choice of the term from her later work is one that I also was intentional about because I wanted it to really reflect on the, um, the, the breadth of her, of her work as a, as a uh-huh. scholar and as a, as a, as an intellectual. So I think, so just, and, and also just to kind of, just to, thread us through what she, what I take her to mean by it. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, um, uh, the, the book brings out several connotations of no slash otras. So this us other distinction, it's also, also the Castilian Spanish term for the first personal pronoun us, but in the feminine, um, which again, if, if you're, if you track Ansel Dua's work, you're seeing her trying to call attention to um, non-dominant sites of, of collective um, uh, creation and collective um, articulation. And I think Nos Otras, even with the slash, which I'll mention here in just a minute, is one that is also meant to be coming from a non-dominant uh, a space of articulation. So I think that yeah. that matters um, uh, for some of the, the books, both audience and the uh, her audience as well, in mm-hmm. terms of the kind of collective work she was doing. Um, in terms of... so. Um, uh, in terms of social ontology, I think part of what she's naming with with collectivities, um, and especially with the forging or the kind of dynamism of uh, of the forging of collective groups through something like an, the articulation of an us or a we, um, is is also this this the the kind of maybe inevitability of internal difference and potential division. And so what she calls la rajadura, the slash is also the kind of wounding or the kind of cut that happens within communities that that not only 
experience internal fracturing, like um, in terms of conflict, but also in terms of um, how people find themselves located um, within social groups. That then, you know, um, anyone who's who's you know kind of dealt with um, you know the kind of uh, either systemic exclusion or kind of discomfort or dissonance within um, social group identities also feels that that slash of that potential wounding in terms of trying to to remain committed to a to a politic or a solidarity, but also negotiating um, discomfort and, and potentially pain or harm. And so I think that like that part of what she's naming is that the existential and ontological conditions of of, of social group existence. Um, and so, and I think again, just to, to harken back to some of the the motivations for the book, I think some of that that view about collectivities and the inevitability of conflict and difference within social collectivities um, also helps to kind of push away from some of these more like mainstream views about intersectionality, like these kind of pop bead models that even someone like Elizabeth Spellman was critiquing like back in the eighties that like mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. has like their racial group, their class group, their sexual group, and that somehow those are. Um, uh, unified or internally consistent in a way that allows us yeah. to make sense of our identity. And I don't think that, that I think, you know, Antaldua and Bambara and the, and the folks who are kind of really introducing the political stakes of coalitional work among communities of color and feminists of color are really grappling with internal difference, division, and, and, the, and conflict. And I think that that yeah. is something that I think gets lost in, in some mainstream views about you know, either feminist politics or intersectionality or what have you. So I think the title is really meant to flag also um, dissonance. And I think that dissonance among collectivities, which I think is an important theme throughout the book, as as, as you saw. So Yeah, that's really brilliant. I'm, I, I love that. And I think that, you know, I mean, there are lots of things I hope, you know, people get from the book and that people read the book and take seriously. But you know, if just that, that uh, collectivity and dissonance like can be thought together in the ways that yeah. you do in the book and people work with that, I, I just think that's, you know, as you articulated it just now by, all by itself. But of course, that's, that's you know, the, the some of the core arguments or, or demonstrations in the book. I mean, this, I, I think that's transformative, right? And I think that's you, you. you on the Lua onto something like really, really uh, profound. And it's interesting to me, I mean, I don't, you know, you don't have to remark on this, but it is interesting even in your explanation and of course in Anzaldua's text, the way that also is, I don't want to say dependent on, but is sort of revealed in in language play, right? Yes. yes. Which is, you know, which is, you know, in Spanish, right? That that it, yes. she's able to pick up this, this collectivity, dissonance, resonance, Etc. Non-domination, the feminine, and so forth. Right. That the language difference makes a difference there. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think. Yeah, there's there's a lot to say about that. Um, about not only Anzaldúa's kind of linguistic um, creativity and um, kind of the political role of you know not just. Castilian Spanish and English, but also Spanglish, um, you know, Tejano dialects. I mean, there's there's so much uh, 
uh, play materially in the language for her. So I also, I, I think that's another thematic here is that, you know, I also am able to write a philosophical book with a Spanish language title, yeah, um, yeah, at yeah. least, at least for the, for the main title um, in a way that is now also trying to pluralize the ways that we're, um, you know, thinking through social group formation. Right. So this is not, mm-hmm. um, you know, not, not that, you know, obviously themes of fragmentation have been addressed in many other philosophical um, uh, you know, approaches and, and disciplines and traditions and so on. But I think what's what's interesting to me about this one is is also the the Latina, Latinx, uh, Mexican American, Chicana, Chicanx kind of roots of, of grounding this within a dialogue among mm-hmm. um, racialized and culturally situated communities, uh, gender sexually situated communities that I that I myself am accountable to with respect to my own experiences and yeah. life and my research. So I think that was that was also a big part of that. And also, I'll just say this is an aside, but it's it's an aside that. Uh, that I think just underscores like another, uh, you know, another level of significance of this book is the way you were just talking there about the the complexity of even naming what this sort of language moment is, yeah. right? In terms of Spanglish, Castilian, Spanish, English, you know, border, you know, borderlands as a as yeah. a as a linguistic moment. Um, I mean, the connections of that to Caribbean theory around creolization, I think is super interesting. I might want to ask you a little bit about similar things uh, later, but also, you know, I think this is one of these moments for philosophers sort of in the Atlantic world that will just stick to the United States since that's where we both live, um, where there's such a mystification and in a good way and real deep appreciation for how German as a language or Greek as an ancient language, mm. right? Reveals things that other languages can't because of some sort of inherent properties. But, you know, Spanish, Spanglish, and borderland languages, whether it's in the Caribbean or in this case, um, uh, you know, in the, in the, the, the borderlands of, of the North Americas, um, you know, that, that has been completely absent from all that really rich work on how language is able to reveal something about being, about knowing and so forth. Mm. And so, uh, I mean, it's one of my pet peeves that so few philosophers learn to read Spanish. Um, yes. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, but I mean, your book makes a case, not just for like, hey, here's some other texts that you could learn from, but instead like, you know, you know, that sort of limit on language engagement is, a, is its own kind of, um, trap in a kind of authority or missing opportunity to think about plurality uh, in in really important new ways. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I agree, and I, I mean, I do. I do believe there are, you know, philosophers like some of whom were, you know, some of the uh, both mentors for my writing prior to this, and, and so on, like Mariano Ortega and others who have really also been exploring that the depths of of you know, Latina, Latinx, linguistic practice and that kind of stuff. So I also feel myself very much indebted to a community of of people who have been working through, um, you know, non-Eurocentric, non-Anglocentric languages to the extent that they're trying to to really forge, yeah, new uh, kind of plural pathways for doing philosophy and so on. So, yeah, I I do see myself as part of that trajectory of those folks as well. Well, That's a great trajectory at this, yeah. We need more. Thanks. We need more and more prominence of that because it's, you know, as I think your book and you know, 
you know, Mariana's book, uh, you know, work uh, and so many others. I mean, it's like this is being demonstrated over and over and sort of I, I'm, I'm hoping it's a, sort of part of a transformative uh, momentum. I could go on and on about this, but uh, vernacular <laughs> vernacular language, you know, is is so transformative of how we uh, how we know and be. And so um, these kinds of engagements are, are, are really critical. Well, let me uh, ask, and then this way we haven't even gotten into the book, although uh, title and subtitle get you <laughs> deep into books. Ask about the subtitle, right? Multiplicit, yes. Multiplicitous agency. I have to practice that word. I have a hard time with that one. Multiplicitous agency, right? It's really, you know, at least to my eyes, uh, the concept that pulls the book together, right? And your subtitle links that to resistance. So just in terms of of the key concept, you know, maybe say a few words about multiplicitous agency and what drew you to that as a philosopher, but also how you see it expanding or deepening our understanding of resistance, which I think can often get very one-dimensional. But this is yeah. a really complicated idea of resistance and its relationship to multiplicitous agency is critical. I mean, it's in the subtitle, but it's also, I think, part of the the sort of political uh, explosion of the book in so many ways. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I guess one way to kind of frame this was through back to this question about self-writing, um, that part of thinking through self-writing as collective practice that's that's forging and, and helping uh, shape resistance practices. So, so one thing that really stood out to me from reading Antalua was um, her interest in the kind of material and physical aspects of writing, the kind of materiality of writing the, and not just um, the materiality of language, but also the the material processes that have to come together to be able to, you know, um, put words in print, in ink, in, you know, at, yeah. through a scribe, what have you, right? So, yeah. so the kind of the, the kind of material conditions that, that are part of that. And there's, you know, there's a lot of really great, not only, you know, kind of, uh, Marxist theorists, but also Sarah Ahmed and others who are really thinking through the materiality of, of writing and language as well. But or anyone who reads, you know, prison writings or thinks about art created within carceral context sees those material demands for writing, right? The need for yeah. ink, pen, paint, and so on. And, and so what's really, um, uh, fat, you know, what's one of the things I learned from visiting Anzaldúa's archive was that, you know, she actually aspired to be a painter and, and, a, and a visual artist. But she, she, she writes that the canvas and the paints were far too expensive for her to have access to. And, and, you know, reporters' notebooks and pencils were way more easily available. And so she chose writing as the venue for her creative expression because, out of necessity, right? Out of the, the kind of the access to those um, uh, material, uh, you know, uh, media in order to, yeah. to express and to create. And so I think not only in her, like her published works, do we see that, that emphasis on the materiality of writing, but also on, you know, uh, in, if you listen to her interviews or her other kind of, you know, uh, unpublished, uh, if you have access to her unpublished work, um, that's also a really, a really nice way to think about this, this, this aspect of the work. So, so in that sense, you know, writing is never that individual intellectual, you know, like if you think about it in its material dimensions, it's not that kind of isolated individualist activity. And it becomes more of this kind of uh, the collective processes that make that 
creation possible. And so I think yeah. that was the, the broader sense of thinking through writing, both in my earlier work on this and for this book. And so um, I took language and writing as examples of agential activity. Um, and I wanted to understand how we could develop tools to reinterpret actions, including linguistic actions and, and, and written actions more broadly. Um, so also for finding resources for interpreting forms of what we might call something like micro resistances or ambiguous acts that themselves um, could lead to potential transformation or change. And so as, yeah. as, as you probably recall, Leonard Harris plays this really pivotal role in the center of the book. His, his yeah. insurrectionist ethics in the third chapter kind of is this... Um, you know, uh, uh, framing of, of trying to understand um, the, the, the multidimensionality of, of resistance and also the, mm -hmm. the, the moral stakes of, of supporting insurrectionist and, and resistant acts. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah. yeah. And so, and so I think part of this work was trying to put um, some of these metaphilosophical tools from Harris um, and others into dialogue with, with people who are thinking about these really um, the, the micro practice of writing and, and self-expression as resistant uh -huh. activity. Uh -huh. And so it kind of has that, that, that um, I'm kind of trying to bridge these different, different conversations and dialogues um, to again, shift away from thinking of writing as this like solitary, exclusive, private, yeah. self-indulgent practice. And to really have this more um, multivalent possibility for not just writing as a, in terms of, biography or autobiography, but also the kind of work that, that philosophers do, that we mm -hmm. should and can have political stakes in the kind of work that we do. And I know that your work, uh, you know, embodies that and, and a lot of the other amazing people you've, uh, you've interviewed on this, on this podcast uh, embody that as well. Um, but I also think, you know, that, that philosophically, um, some of that, uh, the motivations that Harris and Lugones and Ansaldua and others uh, really bring out in their work is that, you know, we can be in the service and ought to be in the service of transforming the material worlds that we're in. Um, we rely on those material worlds to do the work we do and that, mm -hmm. you know, we, sh we should be bringing that out through our political praxis. And so I think, and our philosophical praxis. So I think that's, um, that was, I think the multiplicitous agency in the book is really trying to, um, look at uh, a variety of actions, but linguistic and, and written agency is, is one of those mm -hmm. uh, kind of core themes throughout. So that's, yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> I think philosophy in, in particular, but probably all writerly disciplines, um, are just so held captive at the level of, of the imagination of what we do and what others do by paintings. Right, people yeah. sitting at desks with a little uh, pen, like, uh, uh, or sitting at a computer in a coffee shop. Um, but the the attentiveness to to the material motivations. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say what you just said, and then think about you know. I always ask at the beginning of these podcasts, <laughs> you know, what motivated you to write the book, and every single time, it's it's about some fairly deep stakes about changing, you know, the world of ideas and being accountable to communities or to the call of a certain text or the way you, you know, a person felt implicated in, in, in what they read and how they thought about writing and the influence of voice of who you write about and your own compositional process. And those dynamics are so complicated. 
uh, you can't paint that in a, you know, in a, yeah. of a well-lit corner of somebody with a feather pen or, or however we <laughs> mythologize it. So, um, and that's, you know, as you, as you've been talking about, that's how getting to, you know, Azaldua's own process it's totally fascinating to talk about like wanting to be a painter, but you know, given the material conditions, painting wasn't possible, but writing was. And that mm-hmm. says something I think about, about expressive culture uh, of which writing is one part, right? Expressive culture and this content of philosophy yeah. Um, yeah. in really important ways because um, you know, and maybe this is a, you know, it, it's a question I want to ask you in a little bit, but um, about philosophy in relation to this, but maybe even just more general, um, you've talked about this in some ways, but just to ask it very directly, you know, why Anzaldúa you know, for you, you know, in, yeah. in particular, like what drew you to these ideas, but also to these texts and the, the two are so intertwined, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, as I mentioned, I started reading, um, I first picked up Anseldua and Sri Moraga's uh, This Bridge Called My Back when I was an undergrad. And and it was actually Sri Moraga's poems in that book that were really transformative to me. And really, for me, struck an existential chord that I hadn't read in any other context. And and so it was, and it was personally, um, as a mixed race Latinx young person who was queer identified and living in multiple worlds. So my parents have been divorced since I was a child, but my mom's Panamanian American bilingual working class. My father's Southern American white, white man from an aspirationally middle-class family. And so, and my, both of my parents were hippies of um, our hippies and have supported various countercultural movements and practices and cultural production throughout my life. And so that was, you know, it, from, from very like, you know, specific examples to like Je- the Jehovah's Witnesses as a religious <laughs> counterculture to also like anti-war and, uh, you know, like, you know, pro-cannabis and all kinds of stuff that are very much part of my upbringing. Um, and so like um, I, that included very permissive parenting, but also unconditional love from them. And so I felt very well supported by that kind of like clash and mixture of influences growing up. But um, also Moraga and Anseldua's work gave me some language and name, names and, and conceptual possibilities for understanding these very different life worlds among my, the, the, the different valences of my family, the different people and the different uh, values and interests that my family held and, ha- and does hold. And so I think um, Moraga and Anseldua were some of the first authors and, and, and queer writers themselves to kind of give me language to start interpreting the world around me um, as, as both, you know, trying to understand my childhood and also my young adulthood as, as someone who was also trying to support family members through domestic violence or through um, drug and alcohol addiction and things like that, which have, have also shaped my life. And so, um, and so like things like that, that, you know, I'm, I'm only now in post the book also continuing to work through, for example, the disability politics of Anzaldúa. So I have a chapter on disability politics and disability justice in Anzaldúa. But that's something that I've also kind of heard. Anzaldúa's work has really um, started started giving me and continues to give me language to try to understand um, things like disability or um, access to material health resources and things like that, which are themselves, um, you know, still, still pressing concerns. I mean, obviously we're living in a pandemic right now. So, so, I mean, those are ongoing uh, questions and needs. And so I think, you know, her work was um, urgent in a way that, that I think was like 
answering and, and giving me language um, for my own experience. But then also, um, just again, just to, to kind of pick up on that thread that I mentioned also, like I'm, I'm also really drawn to art and film and writing that I think implicates the audience and the reader and the viewer so that, you know, you can't, you can't yeah. passively, um, you know, and, and, you know, become involved with the work in that way. And I think that Anzal Dua's um, writing as well as a number of other authors, but, but Anzal Dua for sure. Um, she's somebody who really wants the author to be involved in the, in a process through reading, right? It's not a passive process. And so I think um, I see something like a collaborative reading practice as part of what she envisioned. And I, and I wanted to, to kind of like honor that and think through that because I think, um, you know, that's, that's a really important dimension of her work. And then just the last kind of point about Anzal Dua. So, um, you know, I mentioned I've been reading her for a long time, but I was also around a group of really fantastic, um, you know, scholars and friends throughout graduate, my graduate life, um, through largely the Latina Feminism Roundtable hosted by Mariana Ortega. And so, so, you know, Mariana created and curated this space for senior and junior folks to really study and deeply engage with Anzal Dua. So like, just to give quick shout outs to like Natalie Cisneros, Kelly Zaytun, Julie Minich, Maria Chavez Daza, Mariana Alessandri, Emma Velez, and of course, Mariana Ortega herself. Like those folks were the ones who, like they, they have also, given Ansaldua's work life and breadth and complexity in ways that I have learned from tremendously and I'm continuing to learn from them. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, being able to kind of build something with them. And yeah. so I think that, you know, in a way the, the book is also, um, you know, deeply, deeply indebted to having been fortunate to have had a community of Latina and Latinx people around me that were that were doing the work on Ansel Dua. So I really see that as um, as a as a collective uh, as a, I really see the book as a collective process in that way as well. Yeah, I love that. I'm glad you gave shout outs. It's a, you know, it's a shout out safe zone. But I mean, especially because, you know, it goes to this, you know, truth that I think often gets lost about forming, you know, roundtables or groups or, you know, however it's cast of particular um, identity groups. I mean, that's kind of a, a boring way to put it, but I think people often, you know, especially white people imagine that to be like some sort of like, you know, club or whatever, but it's, that's deep intellectual space in which a whole Absolutely. intellectual tradition of commentary comes from. Absolutely. And so, so I, I really love that, uh, that it's a shout out, uh, uh, not only to, you know, friends and teachers, uh, but also to the origins of what has been and, and will continue to be, uh, just a transformative, uh, part of philosophy, um, and also, speaking of clubs, we should have the uh, Philosopher Children of Hippies Club. That I'm also, my parents were L.A. hippies. And so uh, it's a real thing to have grown up. It is a thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is a thing. And people talk about, you know, their parents and, you know, what, you know, what that relationship was like. And 99 times out of 100, I'm like, what are you talking about? And then when I hear, you know, permissive parenting, I had ups and downs and, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, hippie parents. I know that yep. experience. Um, but really, I, that would be a, a great uh, subgroup at the APA or something. That would be amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah. So let me pick up with a, a thing from Anzal Dua. Um, of course, you know, uh, sort of central to her thinking is the notion of 
Mestiza. It's in the subtitle of Borderlands La Frontera. Uh, but that notion as a broader, like so outside on as a broader political and cultural identity claim is something that's come under a lot of criticism, right? Including from you in your fifth and final chapter. So I want to ask you sort of two-part question, although I imagine they intertwine into to sort of one. Uh, what's at stake in that notion of mestiza in Anzaldúa? And what do you, what is important about the critique you offer in both thinking about this category of, of, of mestiza, of mixedness? I mean, this is a, a question across mm-hmm. the Americas, of course. Um, you know, in, in, in establishing that, arguing for it, and critiquing it. So what what's what are the stakes here? Well, actually, some of the one of the like early my early conversations with folks about those stakes were with Ophelia Schutte when I was in my doing my MA research, and she was really careful to point to the relationship between the naming of someone like Jose Vasconcelos in Anzaldúa's work and the nationalist projects of mestizaje in Mexico in the early 20th century. So she really was was trying to build pedagogical um, space and philosophy to have deep conversations about those potential relationships and the potential concerns that people might have, like deep critiques of Mexican uh, and mestizo nationalism, for example, um, in the 20th century, which included, um, you know, anti-blackness, it included, um, you know, the thwarting of indigenous uh, land claims in Mexico. Um, it included the, the primitivization or the kind of, you know, uh, you know, making of an indigenous past to Mexican nationalism and Mexican modernism that itself um, continues to um, displace indigenous futurities and indigenous life and creation in Mexico. And so I think I think one of the things that um, that Ophelia was really trying to to caution her students with was not to be too too hasty in terms of wanting to to take up what Anseldu is calling new mestiza consciousness as a as a you know um, as a simple or as a um, as a particularly um, progressive or transformative form of identification. And, and although I, I would say since that time with Ophelia, I have, you know, I've, I've continued to research Vasconcelos and Anzaldúa, and I, and I do see differences in how they approach the concept of mestizaje itself. So like just one quick one, and, I, and I've written about this elsewhere, is that you know, Vasconcelos saw um, mestizaje, kind of racial, cultural uh, mixing <clears throat> in the Americas and in Mexico in particular as resulting in this kind of like what he considered a kind of monism, this kind of aesthetic harmony that would bring together all the peoples and ideas and values in the world of the Western Hemisphere, let's say, or at least Latin America. And then... Um, and be able to kind of bring forward this like beautiful and good future. So like in literally the values of beauty and goodness are part of that, that aesthetic future. Um, and he called it aesthetics, aesthetic eugenics. I mean, like he's not, he's not shy about the language at the time, but he's also, but he's also, yeah, well, he's also trying to respond to evolutionary theory and philosophical views and political views at the time of the potential regressiveness of mixture. And so he's responding to a scientific discourse as well as a positivistic discourse within Mexico itself that's saying that mixture is regressive and, you know, uh, that 
that um, you know whitening and, and Eurocentrism is the future. And so he's also you know he's given his in his context he's also responding to those problems. But um, what's I think significant about and I mentioned this in the book and I mentioned this elsewhere is that Ansel Dua um, does invoke Vasconcelos, but she also rejects the view of harmony that he offers. And so if you read her carefully, what she says is she's like, the new mestiza has the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? The ugly for Vasconcelos is shed off. And for, for Vasconcelos, it's blackness and the labor, the, the laboring life of black peoples is part of the ugly. I mean, he has, uh, you know, anti-Asian, anti-Arab, anti-Jewish, um, you know, he has a lot of, a lot of uh, cultural and historical um, uh, traditions that are themselves now comprising the parameters of his aesthetics. For Ansel Dua, she's not accepting that. What she's saying is that Things that are that are um, being invoked as the good, the bad, and the ugly are part of the futurity of the mestiza as well. And what she's doing is trying to negotiate those conflicts and tensions. And so I see there's like continuities with Vasconcelos, but also not this kind of harmonic synthesis, right? There's not this kind of like you know uh, uh, resolution. And so I see her work as also um, contesting resolution, contesting finality, and accepting conflict, and as I mentioned, dissonance, and the need for redress for wounding and harm. And I yeah. think like the title of the book says, and like Mestizaje itself, right? Um, though there are patterns and, and deeply implicated cultural wounds within what gets named in cultural and racial mixing, mixing in the Americas and in the Caribbean, right? So like, those are not harmonic projects, right? Despite the racial democracy of Brazil or the, you know, other nationalistic projects that have tried to give it that, that kind of, that kind of valence. So I think um, she's also naming the conflict there, but I also saw the term nosotras from her later work as a response to some of the criticism she received about Mestiza consciousness and about um, the new Mestiza from her earlier work. So I, I chose nosotras as a term that I think kind of shows her um, transformation of thought over time that, you know, by the, by the 1990s, the late nineties, she had received criticisms during her life um, about you know, indigenous politics, contemporary indigenous politics that she was now being asked, like, are you, are you actually supporting this work? Are you, you know, are you, um, or are you kind of further adding to the kind of myth of mestizo modernism that places indigenous peoples in a, in a distant past? I mean, you know, and you can see this too through, through some of her invocation of like Nahua metaphysics or, or Aztec or Mexica metaphysics and so on. So she was criticized for that during her lifetime, but she also was developing new language and new ways to try to like revisit some of her, the old themes in her book. And so it's really interesting to even see some videos from her archive where like she'll, she'll use new language like nosotras, she'll use some of the new language from her later work to like reread passages from Borderlands La Frontera. And so she'll do this like interesting, like, yeah, like intertextual work within her own writing to try to like reframe and revisit things that, that she's working on. So I found that really really important. Um, and I also think the last, as you mentioned, that fifth chapter, just real quickly. So like that fifth chapter really takes up carefully, like, okay, people have viewed, some some folks have taken up Mestiza consciousness without that full scope or without any kind of contextual or historical depth about its resonances in Latin America. And I was worried about that. And so I was worried particularly about um, Anglophone, and the fifth chapter is on about, it's about Anglophone trans studies 
that sees Ansel Dua's work on Mestiza consciousness as particularly progressive for understanding gender. Um, And so that last chapter is really saying, okay, because for example, Sandy Stone in The Empire Strikes Back, 1987, same year as Borderlands La Frontera, cites Ansel Dua as a major influence on how she, how Stone herself is articulating um, uh, trans identities and this kind of like post-transsexual moment. Um, And so like, so what I wanted to do in that chapter was really say, okay, if, if, if we're going to read Ansel Dua within trans studies, which I also work in trans studies and trans philosophy, um, what should we know about the criticisms that have been leveraged against yeah. her, particularly regarding indigenous solidarity, indigenous sovereignty movements, and so on, in order so that we can build uh, uh, you know, trans and gender variant discourses that are responsive to histories of settler colonialism, histories of anti-blackness, and so on. And so it was really an attempt to try to do this multiplicitous work without recreating some of the harms and conflicts that that earlier framings of Mestiza consciousness or Mestizaje were themselves responsible for. So it was also a way to try to like do this um, work with Ansel Dua's writings, but um, from a new lens that would allow us to really try to try to understand the politics, for example, of indigenous sovereignty um, as a gender project as a gendered project that is itself fighting against settler binaries, gender binaries, and so on. And so I really wanted to kind of bring out those dimensions uh, of the work. That's fantastic. I mean, it's, you know, that uh, answer, especially the last bit there, um, I mean, it really speaks to the expansiveness of your project, you know, that it's, it, it moves in, in multiple directions as critique, as innovation and so forth. So I'm glad you sort of ended, ended with that, that comment about this sort of broader question of, of, of gender and settler colonialism and so forth. That's, I think a really brilliant part of the book. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, uh, a question, uh, two part question. So this is first part about philosophy, right? Which we're both philosophers, um, are we philosophers or philosophical people? I've started to say philosophical people, <laughs> philosophically minded people. But, um, you know, in this book, you, uh, you know, you give a philosophical treatment of Anzal Dua's work and the issues that it raises, right? And I say philosophical treatment, and part of what I have in mind is the way, um, you know, a stain on a piece of wood will draw out something about the grain of the wood that without that mm-hmm. stain, we wouldn't really have seen, right? That there's something um, illuminating about about treatments, right? That brings something out. And your book as a, as a f- philosophical treatment of Anzaldua, you know, brings out so many things, right? M- most, uh, many of which you've spoken about already. But I wanted to ask you, it's, it's in some ways just a, a reading method question, like to reflect, like, you know, how do you understand your own practice as a philosopher in terms of your reader, readerly and interpretive logic? It's really just a hermeneutic question, right? The, the text mm-hmm. brings something to us, but we bring something to the text. And what's that something you bring to the text as a philosopher that's able to transform what you're reading? or not necessarily even transform, but draw out uh, hidden aspects of what what has been read outside of philosophy and is now being read in this hermeneutic event of philosophical reading. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know whether I'm like, I, I, I like struggle whether there's anything particularly novel that I, that I'm doing the book on that regard, because I, I'm so indebted to like a lot of the folks who, who really shaped the method for the book. And I, and I have to be honest that I've been really fortunate to have a, uh, have been educated and mentored by, by folks who are, um, uh, who are doing philosophy in a way that, um, that attends to the kind of like as I mentioned the material and existential stakes of 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 living and of survival so like just again I, I want to say like you know like you know Ophelia Schutte's work on philosophy of liberation right like if we're looking at philosophy of liberation as a praxis and as a method we see all kinds of ways in which the spiritual or the material or the land and labor claims of what we're doing are so important. And so like, that's, that's one methodology. I've, I've really been shaped by Leonard Harris's work on philosophy born of struggle, right? Philosophy born of the need to, to strive and survive. I mean, or Talia Betcher, what she calls these, what the fuck questions. She's like, you know, you try, your philosophy is born of trying to make the sense of from what the fuck is happening in my life. Um, you know, and so, and, and not even just those folks, like, even more like if you want to think within a canon, you know, Jose Medina, my my advisor, he was trained in the kind of contextualism and perspectivism of Wittgenstein and the American pragmatists. And so like like Dewey and Jane Addams, John John Dewey and Jane Addams. And so like, you know, that's also an experimentalism which which takes dynamism and meliorism and fallibilism as part of their praxis. So like we we should change and will change our views. The authors we read should change and will change their views. I mean and, and to be honest, even with um I was also at USF, I was also trained with with people who were doing contextualist early modern European philosophy. So like Roger Ariev, Alex Levine. I was also working with cultural studies folks and Latin American studies, like Adriana Novoa, who's a tremendous influence in my life. Um, and these folks are, are contextualist about Eurocentric philosophy, you know, like they are saying we need to understand how interlocutors communicate with each other. What are the political dynamics of a given uh, uh, text being produced, and so on and so on. And so, like that—that that to me was like I'm—I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a product of that education. I'm a product of having had those influences for reading. That says, you know, when we're wanting to understand a theorist, we're needing to attend to their life worlds and to the to the um, to the people they're in dialogue with. And so, as you, as someone else has asked me about this book, I was like, this book isn't only about Anzaldúa. It's about if if as much her readers as as her, because I think her readers have really, um, as an interpretive project, her readers make the work what it is, right? So I have this as a hermeneutic. It's also this dialogical or collective process of interpretation. And so like I saw both my practice as one who is trying to develop something in collectivity with others, but also that, um, you know, what, when we go to look at a figure, we are also called to understand um, those interpretive lineages and those interpretive possibilities. So I think it's like, it's also just kind of a gathering. I see myself as kind of more of a gatherer <laughs> um, than, uh, than necessarily like uh, any, I don't have like, careful language about that interpretive practice, but I do see it as gathering and looking for patterns and looking for, um, you know, conflicts, resonance, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And on this theme of philosophy, I mean, you know, one of the many things that interested me in your book, uh, interested me about your book, um, was that it was taking up the sort of things that I've, I've been trying to do for a number of years now. Um, may even say decade, a couple of decades now, which makes me feel 
like close to retirement or something, but um, which is which is reading people philosophically whose texts do not fit with the conventional notion of what a philosophical text is. Um, I've worked in area studies now for years, which is very different than working in a philosophy department. Um, but even in area studies, right, Africana, Black studies, um, what I do for the area studies people, they're like, oh, that's, that's philosophy, that's philosophical, right? But inside philosophy, it's difficult to say that what I do is philosophy in this sense, that there's that ideology, as you know, in the United States and in the North Atlantic world generally, uh, there's this, um, this, this notion that philosophy is a, is, is a property of the text we read, right? Mm. Rather than something else, right? My own take is that, that philosophy is just a method of reading. And the, the, yeah. the, the style of a text is a literary question, actually. It's not a philosophical question, but we read philosophically, right? But that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a, that turns the discipline on its head. And so I wanted to ask, like, your thoughts on that. Like, mm-hmm. in light of this book and what is now your longstanding um, interpretive, you know, as a writer, as a, as a, as a speaker, as a thinker, a uh, process of, 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 making philosophical interventions in non-conventional texts in the case of the discipline of philosophy. How do you think, if taken seriously, we're taking it seriously, hopefully everybody else will, if taken seriously, your book helps shift the idea of what, quote, philosophy is, and in particular, what, quote, a philosophical text is? Um, yeah, to be honest, part of that, I don't know yet. I mean, I think that will depend on the reception, obviously, and on the the where it goes out of my hands. But I think, um, uh, I think in a way, I mean, maybe I've been really, really lucky to have been encouraged to write about, like, for, the, for example, the dissertation was on had core chapters on Anzaldu and Fanon, and they weren't chapters that I was required to rehearse some kind of comparative approach to a European or an Anglo-centric canon. So I was given the freedom and the uh, encouragement um, when I was in my graduate training to explore across non-dominant methods and across non-dominant philosophical traditions. And I think I'm seeing a lot more of that um, among generations after me, which is also really exciting. And so I think, you know, in a sense, I'm hoping that, you know, we're and it's not that um, it's not that there are no European or Anglophone or Anglo-American philosophers that like we're going to trash that those lineages. Really, what I think it is, is that. Um, is that we should parochialize those lineages, right? Like European philosophies should be parochialized for the context in which they're working and the conflicts that they're in and so on, but they're not a necessary reference point for doing philosophical work. And so I think, you know, there's, um, and, and I think really the most exciting work for me right now is like people who are being trained in non, non neurocentric, um, kind of modes of, you know, uh, traditions and, and modes of doing philosophy that are themselves able to now work 
um, across different non-dominant modalities. So like, for example, uh -huh. like people doing Latin American and Asian philosophies, people doing African-American and Latin American philosophies, people doing indigenous philosophy and Latin American philosophies or indigenous, you know, uh, First Nations and, and Native American and, and indigenous philosophies across the hemispheres. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, like I, I was really impressed and excited by Juliet Hooker's book because what she's doing in that book, Theorizing Race in the Americas, is what she's doing is she's she's not only bringing together Af like prominent African American uh, political theorists and prominent Latin American political theorists, but she's also working across um, different language traditions. And so therefore also bringing you know scholars who are trained in um, you know. Uh, indigenous languages and Spanish are able to then write across yeah, yeah, those, yeah. you know, you know, so I think that's going to be particularly exciting. And so, you know, like, I, you know, not only Juliet Hooker's work and, and the people that she's training, but like, you know, junior scholars like Wayne Wapimakwa, a Métis philosopher, who I think last time we spoke, I know that um, uh, was working on a, on a, they were working on a, uh, a dissertation that was looking at Métis communities in settler Canada and Mestizaje in Mexico and Latin America. Right. And uh, so like, uh -huh. so those are, those are really exciting exciting ways of kind of displacing, you know, um, uh, displacing like the need to refer to European and Anglo-centric Anglo philosophers or, or even, uh, 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 you know, French uh, philosophers in the, in the uh, Canadian context um, to try to like figure out what is going on internally to a given yeah. community or a given political space. And so I think like that's really exciting work. Um, and I, I'm hoping that, you know, if anything, that the kind of way that I'm trying to, to pursue philosophy in the book is encouraging that type of um, that type of work where we don't necessarily, you know, we, 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 we can and, 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 you know, will reference, you know, uh, dominant traditions when we need to or when we want to, but that it doesn't become a requirement for doing philosophical work. And so I think that's also, yeah. you know, a piece of this. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I think myself about, you know, my own work, your work, these people you mentioned, so many of us working in a philosophical register, but really without necessarily ever wanting to or needing to loop back into, you know, these, these uh, white North Atlantic dominant traditions. And I sort of, you know, I, you know, part of what I was, uh, I wonder about, and uh, maybe behind the question for me, is thinking about well, you know, there's a as there's a assertion of you know, this is work we do inside these intellectual traditions or comparative spaces that uh, work outside, you know, sort of, you know, the sort of settler colonialism of intellectual life, right? <laughs> Which is that Anglo-American and white European thought always has to somehow be on the land we work on, you know, so to speak. Right, right. Um, and so I like the sort of moving into these spaces where where the the yeah, the dynamics of, of, of reference citation and argument are unto themselves. And then I wonder sometimes about, is there going to be a, for lack of a better way of putting it, a sort of Maoist moment where we surround, <laughs> we surround the city of, of the white Atlantic world's philosophical traditions and starve it, right? Starve mm -hmm. it in order to assert a new mm -hmm. sense of what philosophy itself is and what a philosophical text is. And that mm -hmm. gets to this insurrectionist ethics, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a sort of formation of traditions and affirmation of those traditions. And then what is an insurrection? I, I just like the Maoist in the sense of coming from the provinces and, and, and uh, starving the city of its uh, lifeblood, whether those are uh, faculty positions or journal editorial shifts. Yeah. 
or uh, more deeply about the meaning and of what philosophy in a philosophical text is, because there's so much implicit work being done that way. And, and I really like those moments where the idea of what a philosophical text is, what philosophy is, is, um, you know, there's that, that moment of insurrection. It's so disturbing to the profession, right? Yeah. But it's also liberatory. It's a, this, this way that philosophy, look, philosophy is like 30, 40, 50 years late to what history, art history, literary studies has done. Yes. Um, and so I, I, I wrestle with like whether philosophy matters that way or not. But, um, you know, when you mentioned, in, you know, the sort of ethics of insurrection or insurrectional uh, uh, ethics, um, it's sort of, I think about that at a meta level, like the history of the history of ideas and our, um, uh, you know, our, our sort of tipping yeah. point. That. Well, I also think, you know, just, just, to, just to bring it back to Leonard Harris on that, you know, I, I think that's what he's thinking of it as as well, because he's yeah, his yeah, demand yeah. in the Insurrectionist Ethics paper is basically you, American pragmatists, need to have an account of why it is morally meritorious to resist oppression. And if you don't, then uh, you're not, you're not meeting the bar. So it does in yeah, fact yeah. Uh, flip the metaphilosophical criteria um, in terms of what counts as relevant work. And I think, or relevant and timely and uh, intellectually transformative work. And so I think what's, what's really, I think uh, inspiring and, um, and really uh, motivating about about Leonard Harris's work is precisely that that um, that metaphilosophical point about you know let's shift the the demands here right or Christy yeah, yeah. Dodson makes this also you know like what show show us you know show in her paper um, houses philosophy you know she's saying you know black women and black feminists need to be given a good reason why philosophy is going to be worth their time exactly. in terms of pursuing a discipline rather than assuming that there's this kind of inclusion paradigm by which, you know, all people should desire and aspire to be philosophy or a philosopher qua whatever particular criteria that a Eurocentric or an Anglophone dominant or whatever uh, uh, standard has. So I think, I think there's a lot of, I think, People are trying to, to do that insurrectionist work and, and now really flip the demands for philosophy. And I think and then I think in a way I'm trying to answer that call and say, let's let's do that. Let's let's yeah, answer yeah. that call of how to how to create theories of resistance, how to create political, um, politically forward uh, work that's going to try to help us transform the worlds that we're in and, and respond to our own existential stakes. Like that's that's the call here. And I think it's a, I, I find that a very exciting one um, because I think it, it, it lets us build collectively from from the margins so to say and and then also like you say put pressure on the center in order to 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 either to either shift or transform or to get out of the way <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i go back and forth uh, on mood uh personally on that one i'm like <laughs> no, shift enhance expand yeah, starve yeah. delete yes yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they're all uh, legitimate uh, strategies yeah well, let me pick up on some of the, you know, you, this general term, you know, from the, from the work done in the margins and ask you about, um, about how, about this book and its implications for other work and sort of in, in different marginal contexts. Um, because of course your book, Antal Duhl's work is very much about, uh, uh, however unstable or un under or unnameable it is, right? An ethno-racial identity, a, a particular kind of historical experience and memory. Um, 
and you know what you do is really give a detailed treatment of that uh, conceptual and existential space but as you know in the book but also the themes of the the sort of concepts of the book touch so much on other parts uh other subaltern traditions right mm-hmm. other traditions on the margins and i was thinking uh in particular about the epigraph from maria lagonis that begins your book that evokes identity as chopped up which is this really visceral image it really caught me i actually had to put the book down before i even started it um, because i had to sit with that that epigraph um because it, for me, it links in such interesting ways to, you know, and you mentioned fragmentation previously, a sort of post phenon Caribbean, this is my own research, um, post phenon Caribbean uh, uh, notions of fragmentation and creolization and the like. And so it made me want to ask you, and this is really speculative, but you already mentioned uh, Fanon, um, how you think that the uh, Anzaldua's work, but your work on Anzaldua as well, uh, in the book, how how you think it travels to these other geographies that have very different historical experiences, that have very different uh, intellectual traditions and problems internal to them. But that's a part of traveling a theory, right, is, is yeah. you know, a productive sense of exchange. So just how, how do you think this work travels? That's a good question. Um, again, another another to be to be determined kind of. Uh, oh, yeah, to be, yeah. to, obviously, I don't I don't know. I can't fully predict or, or think entirely through that. I mean, I know um, on the one hand, like I know with Anzaldua's work. I, I mean, I'll, I'll maybe set, set aside the question of the book for a minute. Um, that there's been really interesting work on how her writings have traveled. Um, so like there's, there's, there's pieces by Ana Rebecca Prada, um, that look at, you know, the, the reading and relevance of Anzaldúa in the context of Bolivia, for example, this is not the Caribbean, of course, but like thinking about across the hemisphere. Um, and so there's like, you know, looking at the relevance and connections for group feminist groups like Mujeres Creando in Bolivia and based in La Paz and like trying to figure out what are the resonances between you know Anzaldúa as a queer chicana writing in you know the united states and then having that even linguistically be translated and and then brought into a context like bolivia uh and so there's also there's those kinds of dialogues going on and there's also like among Anzaldúa's readers um there's in the caribbean at least there's also folks like Yuderkis espinosa and ochi curiel afro-dominican um writers who are also writing about um, sexuality, queerness, um, race, uh, neoliberalism. So there's also those threads of folks who see themselves as building from people like Lugones and others, and, and also citing people like Ansaldúa as having um, resonances with their own thinking now as a, as a um, Afro-diasporic Latin American feminist trajectory. So there's also those lineages which are, which are picked up in the Caribbean. Um, I have to I have to admit I'm not I'm not as well trained um, in uh, francophone or, or anglophone uh, Caribbean discourses, so I'm I'm less um, you know confident in terms of or, or familiar with some of all some or all of the ways that her work has been taken up. Anseldua's work or Lugones' work has been taken up in those directions. Although, like you know, I, I have been in conversation with folks like Mike Monahan, who, who who works also in in Caribbean philosophy, and I know that he's reading Anseldua's work as connecting to creolization discourses, for example. 
So um, I have to be honest about my own sense there. I'm not tired. Sure. I don't know enough to, to really um, to really say to it. And I would love to read more about other folks who are who are working on Anzal doing or or uh, creolization discourses um, that would be able to kind of shed some light for me about 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 the relevance there. Um, but I guess with respect to the book, um, part of the opening in that fifth chapter also about indigenous sovereignty and indigenous politics, um, I take also to be a, a transborder or, um, you know, uh, trans or, you know, kind of geopolitically diverse kind of analysis, because um, one of the concerns that I think um, that Maria Josefina Saldana Portillo raises with, when her when she critiques Ansaldúa. So this was one of the major critics of Ansaldúa when she wrote this this essay, "Who is the Indian in Atlan?" That's what, that was her essay title. Um, you know, really one of the things that she's trying to analyze both in that critique of Ansaldúa and in her later work, she has a book called "Indian Given," which is a very fantastic book, um, is looking at also the different um, discourses of racialization, what she calls um, the racial geographies of Mexico and the U.S. and that. You know, U.S. settler colonialism um, operates via a, a very different logic of contract law and exclusion of um, of indigeneity. So indigeneity in terms of uh, reservations, in terms of um, genocide and displacement, which is a very different form of settler colonial nationalism than mestizo nationalism, right? Mestizo nationalism is prefaced on inclusion, at least ex- inclusion to the extent that the, the future is mixed, right? The future yeah, is yeah, mestizo. Yeah. yeah. But so, but both, which I think is brilliant in her analysis, both those forms of nationalisms and, and settler colonial praxis, or practice, um, exclude indigenous claims to land and include indigenous claims to uh to uh you know future resource and and uh and allocation rights and so in terms of in terms of land and, and natural resources and so i think like there's also these really interesting ways that we can read on like if you if you if you kind of now since i'm reapproaching Ansel Dua's work through that critique like with that critique in mind um i think trying to address some of those uh you know concerns about um about indigenous land sovereignty through something like nosotras or through the kind of um, work that um, that 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 Two Spirit uh, uh, and other queer and trans um, indigenous scholars are doing um, are really important because they see gender sovereignty as as also a facet and a critique of settler colonialism. So I do think there's going to be there's resonances there, but again, like that's that's a, that's another trans uh, geopolitically diverse kind of expansion of this that is like. You know, just just another potential direction. But again, I think that will be that will be kind of seen in in, in the uptake in the future. I mean, I, I you know just to say you know what behind. I mean, I mentioned creolization. I mean, it's my own fragmentation, creolization, my own research interest. But I also think that the the constellation of concepts in in the book, in your book, and in Ansel Dua's work, it just it resonates in the sense of it's not the same, but it it addresses and and it lands in the same like critical space as really like the post colonial world. I mean, you know, the 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 arbitrariness yet you know militarized borders of of Africa. You know, post-independence, which are borders uh, of, of European divide, of you yeah. know Kashmir and the uh, you know uh, partition of India and Pakistan. You know, I mean, there's so many ways of thinking about borders that are specific to places, right? Yes. Um, but the I think that the concepts that come out of this really add in new 
dimensions that, you know, every, every theory that travels is transformed by where it, it lands. Um, but uh, I think these, you know, it's a sort of first class ticket to a lot of these places, so to speak, in the sense of like, this is, you know, this book touches on so many things in post-colonial theory, but I think breathes, breathes um, actual fresh air into them. So. Thank you. You know, I mean, one just as an aside for for a future project, just in terms of traveling, I'd like to kind of take some of this work and some of the critical tools from this book and from Anzaldúa's work and some of her readers to also think through my own context growing up in Florida. And so, like with its own connections to the Caribbean, to military history, to tourism, to sex industries. I mean, there's so much to really explore with respect to South Florida and kind of Florida as a colonial project that I think would also be really interesting to explore. And so I do see, I do see even even personally those kinds of potentials just for traveling across these these other border spaces, right? Like Florida yeah. is a border space. Um, and so trying to figure that out and try to try to read in that direction, I think would be really exciting as well. Yeah. Uh, South Florida is its own philosophical issue, like, like <laughs> a, a, a issue problem, not in the colloquial sense, but as like a thing to be thought. It yes, really just yes. is. It's, I lived yes, in South is. Florida for a year and I was like, this is really not like the United States, but it is no. <laughs> essentially the United States at the yes. same time, right? <laughs> for all the reasons yes. you just said. <laughs> Well, and the colonial history of it itself is very interesting, right? It's not only the site of like, you know, major contestations over ports and uh, access and also like seen as largely worthless for a long time, given the swamp, swamp lands to the south, but also um, sites of major indigenous resistance. I mean, like, you know, the kind of the, the, the um, you know, formation of Afro-indigenous solidarities in Florida is also really important in terms of its own uh, uh, decolonial or anti-colonial projects. So I do think, um, you know, having, having a more, you know, uh, nuanced lens about uh, resistance, you know, uh, movements and networks within within that space is important. Or, you know, my, you know, Stephanie Rivera Berrus is writing on uh, Luisa Capatillo and, you know, the uh, labor uh, kind of labor politics among Cubans and Puerto Ricans in the Tampa Bay region. And like, you know, there's really uh, yeah. interesting and important history there about about um, about uh, kind of dialogue with the Caribbean um, and with other um you know, kind of, like I said, anti-imperial projects or, or anti-colonial projects. It's certainly in the 19th century and also well into the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Let me ask you uh, sort of two final questions. Uh, one about readers. You know, when we write a book, um, you know, my, my saying, uh, which I think a lot of people have their version of it, is my greatest nightmare is that someone won't read my book, but my other nightmare is that someone will. Right, because there's something terrifying about your book going out there, yeah. right? People read it, um, yes, and uh, you know you don't know what they're going to take from it because that's the hermeneutic event is that they come to yes. it with their own their own uh, prerogatives and and so forth. And if we resist the imperial, like you know, everybody must think this after my book. Um, nevertheless, I th you know, we as authors, as much as we understand the hermeneutic event of other readers. Uh, we do want something, I think, something to to leave an impression, to alter the sensibilities of readers, to open new questions for them, to, I mean, my way of putting it is to have them walk differently after the book, right? To really get inside the body, to get inside affect and sensibility and thought. So as you imagine readers, right, what do you, what 
what what do you want? How would you say what you want readers to walk away? Not a takeaway like a hot take, but like walk away mm-hmm. differently in light of your book. Um, well, it's funny that you mentioned this kind of fear of, of, of different interpretations because I had I had a nice um a really fantastic and generative conversation with with folks um, from the Society for Mexican American Philosophy, um, and one of those one of my readers was Francisco Gallegos, and he made this point about like, well, you know, um, if we look at how right wing tactics are taking up uh, like leftist cultural politics, it gets really scary, and so like one of the interpretive <laughs> possibilities Please. becomes like far right appropriation of concepts. I mean, like this happens all over the place, and so like you know, I think. Of course, there's like those nightmares, which I think, you know, and I think, you know, to be, um, yeah, there's just a lot of those kinds of possibilities. But I think one of the things that I'm really, I think in terms of trying to theorize from non-dominant positions and think about non-dominant patterns of resistance and groups and so on, like, I think that's, I'm trying to try to be, um, hopefully the audiences that I had in mind are the ones who are going to get the most out of this book, um, which are going to be, you know, authors who I think not only want to read um, Anzaldúa, but also want to read other um, authors of color, um, authors in, who are traversing linguistic boundaries, um, authors who are writing from the stakes of their personal existence rather than, you know, mere intellectual exercise or something like that. So I think like I'm trying to reach an audience there, but I also, one of the, I guess, maybe things that I hope that that folks can can walk away with is maybe um, a, a maybe um, a set of tools for doing contextualist research. And I think yeah. I mentioned this early on that like, I, I really think it matters that, you know, um, that I, I think someone like Fanon, for example, has now a really, I think, fantastic and rich breadth of scholars who are doing contextual work with his with his writings and with his political um, motivations and with his political solidarities in Algeria and, and, and elsewhere. I mean, like, so there's really, I think his, his work has really provided this, this like immense growth among scholars, not, not simply in philosophy, but much broadly outside of philosophy um, to do contextual work. And I think what would be really exciting for um, Latina, Latinx feminism, Latinx philosophy, Latin American philosophy, um, perhaps also Caribbean philosophy, um, you know, is also to have that kind of contextual nuance and care um, for this, for how we approach a given author or a given set of topics, because I think like that's really going to give more life to the work that we're doing, right? It's going to create more openings, more possibilities. Um, And that includes like, I think, and I think some, some places are doing this already. So like, so um, one of my colleagues and my partner, full disclosure, um, Elizabeth Paquette runs the feminist decolonial politics workshop, and she's been running it for like, at least, I don't know, I think it's like six years now. And, And part of her motivation for that is to read one author for one woman of color author for a week to read as much as we possibly can of that author in terms of breadth and scope of their writing so that we don't cherry pick or tokenize a text or an idea that then gets divorced from the context in which that person was producing it, who they were in dialogue with and what they cared about. And so I think like that, I really hope people take that care and that breadth of of possibility with them from the book. Um, because I think that we need just more, more, more of that, um, 
kind of attention to to the to particularly scholars of color or scholars writing from historically marginalized positions. Like we we can do that. Like we have the tools to do that. And I think that um, you know we can see the growth of philosophical work by through doing that. So I yes. think that's that's one of my hopes. And I really love the uh, nuance and care as a as a philosophical practice as a readerly practice. That's that's really nicely put. I like that. Well, what about you? I mean, you know. The uh, just as we were saying, you know, writing isn't like this sort of painting of the solo writer in a corner at right. a desk. Um, also, uh, writing is not. I had a snapshot in my head of everything I wanted to say, and then I just went and said what I already knew I wanted to say. Like right. writing the book is. I mean, we transform as we write. You know, yes, I, yes. I often talk about. You know, when I was, I think, a sophomore in college, I told my professor I couldn't. I was having a hard time writing, but all my ideas were great. And he's like, you don't even know your ideas until you write this essay. Mm. And I didn't like that because I was trying to get an extension. <laughs> but, you know, there was like, there was depth to that in the sense of like, you know, in the process of writing, we do change. So how do you, you know, you wrote the book. It's now some distance from it. How do you, in sort of retrospect, walk away from the project. And I mean that just in terms of, you know, maybe a word about how or two about how your own sensibilities were changed through the book, but also this invitation to, uh, you know, talk about new projects. And I say invitation to talk about new projects because you have a right to just enjoy your book and not like, what's the next thing? I I, mm -hmm. I, I both hate and live that workaholic, I'm on the next project thing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but how do you walk away differently and sort of where is it leading you? Um. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think was really a a wonderful experience while I was writing the book was visiting Anzal Duo's archive um, at the Benson uh, collection in the University of Texas, Austin, um, which that was like, as a process, that was, I'm not, I'm not traditionally trained to be working in archives. Like that was not something that we, I took a methods class on and in philosophy. I mean, of course, historians do get formal training in that way exactly, yeah. uh, or, or many do. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, that was, that was a new process for me, which I also um, leaned on some of my historian friends and, and other folks to try to help me through. But that was, I think that, that kind of goes back to this, like, um, adding dimensionality to um, to the, the 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 projects or to the, the type of care that we can do as readers. Um, because, you know, seeing like, at least in Ansel Dua's archive, like, you know, finding, um, you know, little notes that she had written to friends or that friends had written to her or finding receipts for things that she was like struggling to pay off or like things that were like the, the yeah, detritus yeah, yeah. of everyday life, you know, are, are, are important because it reminds us of, again, like the embodied, um, you know, beings and processes that we're going through and, and that she went through in order to to write and to eventually get something like a published polished piece that becomes available for then many of us to read many years later. So I think like the archival process was transformative in that way, um, not only for the, the kind of material resonances, but also like um, understanding her relationships to other people in her life, yeah. which don't always show up in the written work. And so like one of those, I think one of the things that I also walk away with uh, um, in terms of the book is like, I had, I still have a lot of unanswered questions about Ansel Dua's own writings, but also kind of her life and her practice as a, as a, um, 
as a, you know, I don't know if you want to say a, a feminist scholar or as a, um, as a, as an activist or however you want to um, frame her, because, um, you know, one of the things I, I spent a lot of time when I visited the archive reading her letters with, um, with the Mohawk scholar Beth Brandt, um, the Mohawk, Mohawk poet and author Beth Brandt. And, I, and I'm actually working on that now. So just kind of thinking of future directions. So what I'm writing on is like, okay, one of the questions that emerged in the, at the end of the book for me was again, like, what are, how has Ansel Dua's work responded to the calls for indigenous sovereignty and indigenous political futures? Um, and so one of the ways to answer that is not just to look at her published materials, but to then look at what were her political relationships like with indigenous people in her life? Like what, what was she living as a praxis of, among indigenous people that was part of her, you know, um, her life world and part of the, the, the way that she's found herself being committed and in relations of solidarity. And so in fact, right now, like just at the end of this month and, and, and likely for another uh, talk this semester, I'm going to be um, uh, again, working through those letters with Beth Brandt, because one of the things that emerges there is not only like that they have an intimate friendship, but they're also exploring um, queerness from different positionalities with respect to like, you know, Brandt, Brandt as writing as, as I said, as a Mohawk um, woman, as somebody who was, you know, um, living in Detroit and living, um, but had frequently had a uh, relation, like had uh, like family relationships and kinship uh, connections to uh, the Bay of Quinty First Nation. And also like trying to negotiate her queerness in relation to other native women turns to Anzaldúa as a Chicana and starts like kind of dialoguing with her about the differences and the similarities of, of identifying as queer within a, within a community that she desperately um, wants to find herself in, but also trying feeling that internal dissonance um, as a lesbian or as a queer person now within, within their own respective communities. And so I found that to be a really productive and interesting dialogue. There's also like material questions about who's getting paid for what work that they're writing. And I think that's really important, again, back to the material conditions of our work, like, you know, uh, compensation and, um, you know, being uh, um, materially supported for the work that you produce is tremendously important. And at the time that both Beth Brandt and Ansel Dua are putting together um, anthologies, the firsts of their kind on, for example, in Beth Brandt's case, Native American women writers, um, you know, the, these these are tremendously important in terms of how these authors are not just being read, but also being um, supported materially by publishers or by their readers or by awards and scholarships and so on to be able to continue to do that work. So I think, you know, um, there's there's that that those dimensions of their friendship about negotiating the um, the. Uh, kind of like financial side or the material resource side of being a writer um, from a non-dominant group, a non-dominant positionality, um, and then also fighting against trends to like, you know, exploit their labor or exploit their, exploit their ideas or do, you know, get an, a speaking invitation for with no money offered or yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, lots yeah, of these things true. that are part of that, that reality. So I think that's, to me, that's very interesting and that's something I'm still working on. Um, so, um, yeah, so I mean, those are some unanswered questions. I also, the, the, another project that I'm kind of thinking through is, and this also came up through the Beth Brandt uh, correspondence with Ansel Dua, but also through the book more generally, is also I'm working on a project on Latina, Latinx critiques of carceral institutions. And I think some of the work on Nosotras and agency um, are going to be really helpful for thinking through an abolitionist politic, which is another kind of scope of my work, is thinking through prison abolitionism as a, as a kind of multiplicitous agential project. So yeah, that's, that's some of the things on the horizon. Well, I can't wait to, uh, 
to see where all of this goes. These are these are not only like extremely interesting projects you're talking about, but uh, I really do think urgent at multiple levels, and and then that way reflects you know my sort of broadest take on your book, which is that it's interesting and urgent at the same time, and uh, may we all write interesting and urgent books. <laughs> so but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this book. It's so interesting. Uh, absolutely, I learned. I didn't say this at the beginning. I learned so much from the book, and and that's my favorite kind of book where I get to to walk away having learned, but also, uh, you know, a lot of energy for comparative study and exchange. And so having this chance to hear you talk about it and talk with you a little bit about the ideas has been a real treat. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, John. I really appreciate this time as well. I appreciate it. All right, Andrea, take care. You too.